immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 15 of Turn on the Light. I am your host, Louise Cordry. Now, this episode is a very exciting episode, as it's actually the first part of the very first two-parter episode of Turn on the Light. Um, There was just too much that I wanted to talk about in terms of the species, which is my favourite conservation success story uh, ever, for the reasons that I will make clear. (laughs) Um, And also, my guest for today had just so many interesting and amazing things to say that the interview went on for uh, much longer than what uh, I usually tried to keep it to Um, and there was no way that I was cutting any of it out because it's bloody gold so yeah so you've got your first two two two-parter episode um, which is exciting Um, and this episode is actually also significant as it is the penultimate episode of season one Um, So that's right, folks. Episode 16 will be the final episode of the first season. Um, Keeping it short and sweet, I didn't want, you know, too many episodes to sort of swamp everyone, um, allowing listeners time to catch up with the series so far, and allowing me to use the rest of the year to spread the message of Turn on the Light, um, hopefully get more listeners on board, uh, ready to come back with season two in 2021. Um, which I hope will be a better year for everyone. Um, Which, of course, reminds me to say that I hope you are all keeping safe and staying well. Now, on to the good news stories that happen at the top of every episode. Uh, The first wonderful piece of news to share with you all is that Golden Eagles have successfully bred and reared a chick at the Trees for Life Dundragon Estate in the Scottish Highlands. This estate is Trees for Life's flagship restoration project. Um, so it's an area that of land, this estate that they bought um, back in 2008. Um, and they're restoring it, they're rewilding it um, to a, a wild space for all species. Um, and since they bought the estate in 2008, they have planted over 335,000 native trees. Um, and the rewilding of the estate is, is proving to be a massive success in it in and of itself. Um, so ongoing biodiversity surveys have led to the discovery of 16 species, um, mostly invertebrate species, but 16 species at Dundragon that have been not seen anywhere else in the UK. Thereby emphasising the significance of the estate for biological diversity. So these 16 species are only found there on the Dundragon estate. Um, So with the Golden Eagles, um, an artificial nest site was built on the estate five years ago um, on a rocky, craggy outcrop that was actually an old nest site. Um, And they made the the nest with native tree branches intended to encourage the eagles to come and breed there, which has indeed worked. And Doug Gilbert, the manager of the estate, described it as a rewilding success story beyond our wildest dreams. Isn't that lovely? Um, So the second story today, I have two to tell you. Um, I just couldn't let this one go unspoken about. One, because it's just simply amazing. Um, And two, because it involves an invertebrate, which are a group that I haven't really been talking about at all, really, so far um, in the podcast, which is perhaps something to consider for season two and something that I will rectify. Um, So yes, I am delighted to tell you 
that a butterfly that was once extinct in the UK has been successfully reintroduced to another part of the Gloucestershire countryside. Um, so just over a 1, thousand, 1,100 larvae of the large blue butterfly were taken from another part of the West Country um, where these these butterflies have been previously successfully reintroduced. Um, so the larvae taken from that area of the West Country and released in Rudbrook Common last August. Um, and so since then, an estimated 750 butterflies have emerged over this summer. And this successful breeding means that this is the first time in 150 years that the large blue butterfly, which is the largest and the rarest of nine British blue butterflies, has been recorded on Rudbrook Commons. So yay, woohoo for the butterflies. Um, and as you may know or may not know, uh, insect life is essentially what underpins all life. Um, the bedrock of most other species, all other species on the planet. And in the UK, our insect life is increasingly more and more threatened. Um, so this piece of good news is much needed optimism and motivation for insect life indeed. Now it's time to reveal our species in the spotlight for this and for next episode. As I mentioned earlier, this little creature is my favourite conservation story with quite the incredible comeback. They are a little mustelid species whose furry patterns give these cuties their name. It is, of course, the black-footed ferret. So, introducing the black-footed ferret, Mustela nigripes, aka the American polecat or prairie dog hunter. This little ferret is the only ferret species native to North America. This fuzzy fella measures around 50 centimetres in length, with their tails measuring up to around 12 centimetres, um, which means that their tails make up around 20% of their total body length, um, so quite a long tail there. They weigh from around 650 grams um, to around 1.4 kilograms, um, and as I said, fuzzy fellas, this is the males. The females tend to be around 10% smaller. Um, they look very much like a mink, um, very much like a ferret, if you imagine in your head. <laughs> and I do recommend, if you don't know what they look like, please Google a picture of them, because they are just terrified. You want to squish them. Um, yeah. So that's their size. Um, as I said, there they are a muster lid. Um, and they are a part of the weasel family. So they have those characteristic long skinny bodies. Um, and long, along with their namesake black feet, they have black masks on their faces and tails um, that accent their otherwise tan colour fur. And those little black marks on their faces make them look like they're wearing a little mask. It's very sweet. Um, now they actually share a common ancestor with the European polecat from which the type of ferret found in pet stores was domesticated more than 2,000 years ago to hunt rabbits and control rodents, as a little fun aside for you there. Um, yeah, so the European polecat is essentially what pet ferrets descend from. So the main component of black-footed ferrets' diet is the prairie dog, which will be important later when we're discussing their decline um, and reasons for that. Um, so as I said, they are native to North America um, and their historical range was closely correlated with, but not restricted to, the range of those prairie dogs, which make up the majority of their diet and about 90% of their diet. Um, so the ferrets range extended from southern Alberta and southern Saskatchewan. 
Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Please, someone tell me how to say that. Anyway, um, to Texas. To Saskatchewan. That's how you do it. Saskatchewan. There you go. That's it. New Mexico and Arizona. Historical habitats of the black-footed ferret included short grass prairie, mixed grass prairie, desert grassland, shrub steppe, sagebrush steppe, mountain grassland, and semi-arid grassland. So grasslands and prairies across the board. Um, and interestingly, black-footed ferrets also use prairie dog burrows for raising their young and avoiding predators and thermal cover. So not only do they make up most of their diet, they rely on the shelters that the prairie dogs have built for for cover um, and for shelter as well, which is a bit, <laughs> seems a bit, you know, mean, but you know, whatever, it works for them. So why are these guys featured on the podcast today? They were only actually first encountered in the mid 1800s, at which point North America's prairies would have been home to tens of thousands of black-footed ferrets. But those populations quickly dropped from their discovery to the point of almost no return. So their grassland homes were converted to farms um, a lot during that time period. And their main food source of the prairie dog was absolutely decimated by a few factors. Um, one of those was a plague introduced from China around a century ago. Um, and other things that threatened them were rodent poisons that were used in, in agriculture. Um, so the plague that I mentioned there was the Sylvatic Plague, which is an infectious bacterial disease that primarily affects rodents, such as prairie dogs. And it's actually the same bacterium that causes the bubonic and pneumonic plague in humans. Um, so it's called Sylvatic Plague, um, or Sylvan, um, so that means occurring in wildlife, um, and refers specifically to the form of plague in rural wildlife. It is primarily transmitted among wildlife through flea bites. So like, you know, your traditional idea of the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Um, that is also how this is transmitted. Um, and contact with infected fluids and tissues. Um, lovely. So the sylvatic plague is most commonly found in prairie dog colonies. And it can also actually affect some mustelids like the black-footed ferret itself. Um, so as I said there, prairie dogs not only make up 90% of a ferret's diet, but their burrows provide its only shelter. Um, so this decimation of this prey species for them was quite the problem. Um, Black-footed ferrets were also a popular target of fur trappers. The American Fur Company caught many of them um, back in the 1800s, um, which is, again, not a rare occurrence, sadly. Um, so... Ferrets, the black-footed ferrets themselves are solitary and nocturnal and they spend much of their time underground so it's very easy to miss um, populations of them anyway and as their populations declined due to the aforementioned factors um, it was very very difficult to spot these guys at all. Um, so over the years they became harder and harder harder to spot harder to find and by 1981 the species was thought to be totally extinct which is what makes this story this conservation success story my favorite one um because they were thought to be extinct and to, to bring a species back from that bringing them back from beyond the grave almost um is just so incredible um and also this this little story here um so as I said, they were 
thought to be totally extinct. That was until 1981. So, incredibly, a northern Wyoming rancher's dog one day <laughs> came back to the ranch and dropped a ferret carcass at the feet of their owners on their porch. So this happened on September the 26th, 1981, in the town of Matitsi, Wyoming. Again, I need to look up if that's how you say that. Um, but at this lady, Lucille Hogg, her ranch dog, Shep, um, went out into the wilds and went off having a great time and found this dead black-footed ferret and brought it back to the ranch. Um, and so after that, it was obviously thought like, well, he's found that, unfortunately it's dead, but that means that there could be other ones out there, right? Um, and it would take almost a month, but on October 29th of the same year, the first live ferret would be sighted for the first time in three years in that same town, and the town would be dubbed the birthplace of the black-footed ferret. That led to wide searching of the area, where biologists eventually found 130 black-footed ferrets, the last surviving colony. Um, now, that remnant population reached a few dozen ferrets um, that lasted there in the wild as devastatingly disease swept through that colony, uh, meaning by 1987 the animals actually were once again considered extinct in the wild. Thankfully, before this point, biologists had captured the last of them to create a total captive breeding population of 18 individuals. So 18 left, 18 of them taken from the wild into captivity to make sure that this species could be preserved and hopefully uh, reintroduced to create more wild populations in the future. So this accidental discovery of a remnant colony of a species that was thought to be extinct prompted the launch of an incredibly ambitious captive breeding programme to save this species. Again, that's the reason why it's my favourite story. It's so many ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. They were thought to be extinct. Oh, wait, they're not. There's these guys that are left, but oh, crap, no, shit. They've got disease. Like, they're, this last remaining population is now dying out as well. Let's get them. Let's grab them. Let's do something to protect them and to actually stop them being totally wiped off the face of the planet forever. Um... So these oh-so-cute and playful ferrets were caught to establish that breeding centre in Wyoming. Now, spoiler alert, not really much of a spoiler because it's the theme of the podcast, but spoiler alert, the recovery of the species that started with just those 18 animals was successful and there is an extant wild population existing today. All black-footed ferrets alive today are related to those original 18 animals. The combined efforts of veterinarians, zoologists, ecologists wildlife managers, not to mention 35 private and government agencies, resulted in a remarkable comeback for this sleek carnivore. Now, not only is that recovery obviously good for the species themselves, their recovery in the wild actually signifies the health of the grassland ecosystems which they depend on to survive and which in they live. So next week, we will explore the breeding and reintroduction programme in much more depth and look at the status of the black-footed ferrets in the wild today. Now it's time for your fun ferret facts. Fun fact number one. There are only three ferret species on Earth. The European polecat, the Siberian polecat, and the black-footed ferret. And, as I mentioned, the black-footed ferret is the only ferret species native to North America. Fun fact number two. Female ferrets are called Jills, males are called Hobbs, 
and their young are called kids. Fun fact number three. A group of ferrets is called a business. Mind your business. Number four. Black-footed ferrets are very playful, especially as juveniles. Young will play at wrestling, arch their backs, hop backward with their mouths wide open in a display known as the ferret dance. That should be a TikTok challenge. Fun fact number five. Black-footed ferrets are very vocal. A loud chatter is used as an alarm call. A hiss is used to show agitation or fear. Females use whimpering sounds to encourage their young to follow. And male ferrets often chortle to females during breeding. Now it's time for me to introduce my guest for today. An incredible lady who I had so much fun interviewing that it just had to be a two-part episode. Everything was gold, nothing could be cut out. So, without further ado, let me introduce Soraya Abdel-Hadi. Soraya is the ultimate advocate of taking a holistic approach to protecting and conserving our planet. She has a varied background in sectors like veterinary and journalism, but took the ultimate plunge of leaving a dream job in order to make much more of a difference. Having undertaken a One Planet Executive MBA in sustainability, leadership and business at the University of Exeter, Soraya has chosen to focus her many skills on conservation, sustainability and supporting organisations whose purpose is to do good for the planet. Hey Soraya, welcome to Turn on the Light. Um, how are you, first and foremost? I'm good, thank you. Um, it's a bit of a weird time at the moment, but everything is okay at my end. <laughs> good, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, so in the intro there, I touched a little bit on that you left your, your dream job to pursue more conservation environmental parts. Um, could you tell us what that dream job and what it was that led you to such a big decision? Yeah, so um, my dream job was a bit random. <laughs> um, so I worked as an equestrian journalist. Cool. Um, and uh, I worked for one of the uh, 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 monthly magazines. Um, actually, the UK's best-selling Equestrian Monthly magazine <laughs> said that a few times. Um, and it was incredible. Um, I got to write all day. Like, sometimes I would just pinch myself, being like, I just get to write about horses all day. This is, like, the, the weirdest job. <laughs> and in the summer, I would get to um, go out and do photo shoots and um, interview Olympic riders and visit all these beautiful yards and see these beautiful horses and also try things like um, tent pegging which is like a military thing where you have to you basically gallop at a small wood thing in the ground like a wood peg in the ground like a tent peg and um, with a sharp stick oh, okay <laughs> and you have to try and hit it um, which is ridiculous but anyway <laughs> it was it was an amazing job um, and I've always wanted to be a writer, so it was horses, I've ridden since I was five, um, and writing, so, and getting to spend time outside. The dream, I can see why, it, yeah, you describe it as the dream job. Yeah, so it was, uh, it, it was, as I say, amazing. It didn't pay very well. <laughs> jobs like that. The best jobs, you. yeah, often don't, yeah. <laughs> Um, but generally speaking, it was great. Um, 
And I worked there for about four years. And there was something that just was a bit off, mm. kind of near the end of my time. Um, and I couldn't work out what it was, um, but I knew that it, I basically didn't want to do it forever, mm-hmm. um, which was quite a sad realisation for me. And especially when it's a job, which a lot of um, jobs also in conservation have this problem, which is um, especially when it's a job that everyone's like, well, why wouldn't you want to do that? Mm-hmm. That sounds incredible. And you're like, well, yeah, the outside sounds incredible, but like some bits of it aren't that great. Um, it's still a job. Mm-hmm. So um, I did this like really... Uh, I basically I just decided I would try and work out what I wanted to do when I was like seven or eight yeah. um, because I thought that would maybe give me a bit more purpose and long-term direction and everybody knows exactly what's going to happen at, at that point you know like <laughs> I was the I same <laughs> exactly like everyone knows well my sister actually um we joke in my family because when we asked my sister that question she was like I want to be a fairy <laughs> I was like that's not going to happen but fine um, <laughs> so I wanted to work with um, dolphins actually specifically Flipper because <laughs> I was watching a lot of Flipper at the time um, but I wanted to work with dolphins and that made me think could I move into a more conservation-based career? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd done like a, some other jobs. I did a law degree also before I, well, had my degree. And um, so I have a lot of different skills. Um, I'd worked at an equine veterinary hospital um, as oh, well. Um, so, but I'm not a scientist and I'm not an animal behaviorist, and I haven't done any of those courses. So I was like, how can I make an impact in this space if I want to do it? So I decided that I would go back to uni and do um, a, an MBA, or a master's in business, mm-hmm. but with a focus on sustainability, because basically when I looked at conservation, um, all of the things that are impacting all of the amazing animals that are on our planet, uh stem back to sustainability issues essentially whether that's yeah whether that's pollution or it's pressures from um population growth or um it's problems with poaching because there's not a huge number of other opportunities in different areas um basically all comes back to sustainability which is this Mm -hmm. huge subject also if you do sustainability as a subject and it's huge, you can't get bored because there's always something to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, very good point. Um, yeah, so I thought if I chose that as a as an area and focused in that area, maybe I wouldn't get as distracted mm-hmm. and start doing like I could move within the field basically. <laughs> and it's working out pretty pretty well so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been it's it's been great um actually and it's been nice to have uh this bigger purpose because i feel like that's what was missing when i was working in the magazine yeah and it it was an amazing job i really enjoyed it we were helping people but it's it's a different level of helping it's nice to feel like we can chip away at these kind of bigger world issues 
Exactly, and, yeah. Something that's going to affect everybody um, in, yeah. in, in some kind of way. And to, yeah, to feel like you're part of that bigger picture, I think, is what a lot of people yearn for. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you found that feeling um, sort of with what you're doing now. And it's incredibly <laughs> impressive um, backstory of yours um, doing an MBA um, uh, after having already got a law degree and all these different skills that you bring to the table. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your current sort of day job in air quotes, um, particularly um, the work that goes on within the organisation on um, plastic pollution and citizen science, those kind of things. Yeah, so I currently work as operations manager for X Expedition, um, and we organise all women sailing trips looking at plastics and toxics in the ocean all over the world. Um, and we do, um, our teams are multidisciplinary, so the women on board are not necessarily sailors or scientists, which is usually what's expected, but they're also um, teachers, they're product designers, they're artists, um, filmmakers, uh, so that we can really take like a multidisciplinary approach to what we're doing, and all the people on board can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we do citizen science, which feeds into global studies. Um, we work with the University of Plymouth and our science lead, uh, Winnie, is based there. She's amazing. Um, and she's designed this um, global, um, basically we're doing lots of testing in lots of different locations. So we're going to have this global data set, which hopefully is going to help us get a better idea of the situation, particularly with microplastics mm. um, all over the world. Because we yeah. are just in the middle, or we were in the middle, of sailing around the world. <laughs> um, and we also do outreach in all the places that we visit, and we work with local community groups um, in those locations. Mm-hmm. So it is an amazing project, and it's a huge project, and we have a very small team, um, and about, gosh, beginning of... 2019, I became the first um, full-time employee, basically, of the organisation. And now we have a few more people, which is great, but we still are a, we're still a super tiny Mm -hmm. team doing this project. So my job involves helping Winnie with the science permits, which applying for science permits all over the world is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's the it's going to be my specialist subject um, <laughs> by the time we finish this, um, this round the world journey. And um, we are, I also uh, do all of kind of like the background business stuff for the organization. So it's very much like using my skills in business mm-hmm. and my understanding of sustainability to be able to kind of help the project run. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty all-encompassing mm-hmm. job. I do everything from bookkeeping to... I have to go pick up, like, our, our waterproofs from that have been delivered back from the boat in yeah. a few days. Um, <laughs> and I also need to sign off our Australian science permit. So it's kind awesome. of like... It's, it's everything. Everything. Um, and it's very exciting, and it's great. And that's what, that's what excites me as well, as you can probably tell from what I was saying about my previous work, uh, is I get really excited 
excited about doing lots of different things. Mm -hmm. I'm very easily bored. I recognize that about myself. And um, therefore, I need lots of variation to kind of keep me going. Um, We have had to pause due to COVID, which is um, tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone is impacted in slightly different ways. Um, But taking a boat with lots of different women from lots of different places, they're all different nationalities, um, and flying them, which is also like something which is one of the challenges with our project. Yeah, into, contentious um, issue. <laughs> small, yeah, into small Pacific islands right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, is A, not at all practical, um, B, not safe, mm-hmm. and C, irresponsible um, for the local communities. So um, our boat is currently in Tahiti um, and we have decided to pause for what we hope will be a year and mm-hmm. restart our actual sailing part of our project um, in April 2021. Um, and in the meantime, we're focusing on our digital impact. Yes. Um, but most of our team is currently um, part time as we try to save some money mm-hmm. because we didn't budget for this extra year. Um, <laughs> who did? Hey? <laughs> Yeah, who saw this coming? No one. <laughs> um, but we've made this amazing online platform um, with different ways that, with um, SAP, um, or like lots of different ways that you can tackle plastic pollution yourself mm-hmm. at home um, as an individual, but also as, a, as somebody within a workforce mm-hmm. or uh, within an industry, or if you want to influence government and things like that, yeah. which is very exciting. And we're going to be doing lots of other online things. But um, it also means that I have a bit more time to yes. work on <laughs> And I love that. Like, obviously, education is sort of the, the foundation of, of making things better, isn't it? Like, making people aware of these issues. And I was listening to a, a different podcast the other day, the Watershed podcast. And obviously, I was aware of plastics in the ocean and microplastics and stuff. But even to the point of, you know talking about when you take off your rain jacket and shake it off then little bits of fibers come off and and when you wash your clothes those plastic fibers end up in the oceans and that you know even in the deepest darker sea trenches there are plastics present in the organisms down there and it's just like absolutely mind-blowing um of of sort of the issues that it, with plastics that the oceans are facing so to to make people aware of that and just to, to spread that education around people is so important um so yeah i really hope this sort of time period for expedition is, is really successful with with that side of things as well um but you mentioned there that a lot of you are part-time and that leaves work t- sorry time for you to work on other projects um so maybe you could tell us a little bit about those projects as well <laughs> um yeah so um i'm working i'm writing a lot on my blog again which is quite it's, mm-hmm. which is quite fun because um, as I mentioned, I was originally a writer. It's what I always wanted to do. And I think it's one of the key places that I can make an impact because I am have been... See, this is the... That was like, I, I'm skilled at it. Which yeah. It sounds yeah. Like I'm being... You're good at it. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, so one of my... Um, actually, one of my specialist areas as well is authentic leadership for women. Um, and one thing, one of the things, this is just like a side note, one of the things that women do is we say, oh, well, I'm just, I've just done that, or I'm yes. only this. Um, 
mm-hmm. but I find it very hard to practice myself to just be like, yeah, I am good at that. But anyway. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> and women do that thing as well, like when they ask a question, they're like, oh, I'm really sorry, but like, there's no yeah. sorry buts, just say what you've got to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I've been blogging a lot about um, things that are related to and are adjacent to um, conservation, travel, nature, sustainability, um, and just enjoying writing about those types of things again, so that's something. Um, I'm working on a project with Richard Matthews, who is an adventurer, um, on how we can help and encourage people to get into outdoor activities Mm -hmm. um, when they may not know where to start. Because I think one of the biggest challenges with the outdoors is it's all very well if you live near the sea and you have a community around you who are surfers, for example. Mm. But for someone who doesn't know anyone or have any idea, it can be very difficult to find that bit of information. You can find lots of information online about surfing, but where do you find a page that says, these are the things you need to know, what's the one piece of thing what's the one thing that you need to know about it? What's the one piece of equipment? If you're gonna buy something you should buy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But for lots of outdoor activities. And um, there are a lot more than we probably initially anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's gonna take us a while. <laughs> um, but it all ties back into this idea that if you spend time out, outdoors and in nature, then you're far more likely to connect with it and mm-hmm. you're more, far more likely to then want to um, protect it yes. and take active steps in that. Um, and the more, more people talking about it, the more people who hopefully will get involved. So that's, that's one project. It's and a pretty huge project. Yeah, it sounds like a big one. <laughs> how's it going? What's your... What's the sort of status as it stands at the moment? Well, we have sent out requests for people to write introductions. Um, everything is voluntary at the, at the moment in terms of people helping us because we don't, we don't have a budget for it. Mm-hmm. We're not getting paid. Um, we're hoping that we'll look at some different funding models moving forward, um, but we want to get the base level of the site up first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so the website is um, sat sat there waiting for me to possibly this afternoon start loading something. <laughs> <laughs> this is very much a current project. Um, Good, so it's hot off the press. We like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we're hoping the next um, next few weeks we should have something up and running that people will be able to start using and give us feedback on. Um, and there's lots of other exciting things we want to do later um, in terms of like connecting people with talks that might be happening locally to you because quite often conservationists and or adventurers tend to do talks in kind of independent venues where mm-hmm. it's quite difficult to find out where they're doing them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are so many elements to that. So that's one thing. <laughs> it was supposed to be this tiny little passive income project that I was going to do, which was going to be promoting um, adventure talks and um, it's turned into this huge project um, but it will also connect people hopefully with their local outdoor groups mm-hmm. um, which is quite exciting it's Definitely. really exciting it's just a lot of work um, I wish I had a resource like that when when I was younger you know living in a in a city and not sort of perhaps having that information available so I think that's yeah amazing um does it does it have a, a name is there a, a name for the project 
Yeah, it does have a name, although we're thinking of changing it. Um, so its current working title is um, We Are Adventure. But there are a couple of other um, similar websites, mm-hmm. um, similar names. They're not doing the same thing, but similar names. So we're looking at some other alternative options. Um, so stay, stay tuned for that working title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, if we're going to change it, now's the time to change it before we before we launch it. Yes. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, so yeah, so it's a, and that's the thing is like we want to include all of the different outdoor outdoor groups as well um, to do a range of different activities, and we want to try and include um, para advice as well, mm-hmm. as well as kind of like the advice for. Um, people from different backgrounds so we're going to try and tackle all of those barriers it's kind of a like yeah it's got big aims yeah you're gonna say you're gonna save the world and change make big changes <laughs> <laughs> we will we hope we'll hope we're gonna make our our small our, our small dent and i think if we all try and make our own small impact then we'll then and we'll it's create a big one. more yeah. positive change exactly yeah um I'm also doing an ebook project um, with uh, my friend um, Bex Band, who runs mm-hmm. the Love Her Wild community. Yes. Um, where we're looking at a book that kind of gives advice for people who want to maybe move into marine conservation but don't know where to start um, and haven't done a don't have a science background um, because neither me nor Bex have a science background. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want people who want to have this purpose and be able to create change to be able to understand that they can. They don't need to. You, Absolutely. You, amazing if you do have a science or a conservation background and education. But if you don't, you can still mm-hmm. still do positive things. That's what I love um, about that particular project. And I was speaking to another um, interviewee a couple of episodes ago, Leona Dickerhoff, who um, created the Siren Project. Um, and that's sort of like the same idea. Like she talks to you know mothers who are bringing up their children to have a love and appreciation and respect for the ocean. And like everyone from different walks of life can be a conservationist or an environmentalist. Like, and I just yeah, I love that because I think maybe sometimes science can be a bit daunting for for a lot of people. So yeah, what a wonderful resource for you to be producing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um it's something I'm super passionate about because I think so many people say to me, I want to do something similar to what you do. And I'm like, maybe not exactly what I do, but what, what are your skills and how can you, how can you do that? If that makes sense, because, um, everyone can create change and they just need to work out like where it's that, it's that diagram, isn't it? With the, with the three circles Mm -hmm. where it's like, what are you good at? Um, what does the world need? And what's the other one? Like, what what can you get paid what, for? Yeah, yeah. What could yeah. yeah? What can you live on? Yeah. And where it meets in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's finding that point. Um, and everyone's good at something. Um, so, and every organisation, if you want to move into an organisation, all of these organisations need all these skills. Doesn't matter if you're great with numbers or you're amazing at social media. Like all of those things are necessary to make a successful conservation project. So, mm-hmm. how can you, how can you do that? Um, so yes, yeah, so that that. I feel like there's a couple of other things, but I've got. I actually had to make a to-do list the other day, which has a list all my projects because I have <laughs> too many projects, and um, I get a few days. 
days in because I do normally have a full-time job as well mm-hmm. um, so I get a few days in and then I'm like oh yeah I completely forgot I also needed to do that <laughs> um, I think those are the two two main ones mm-hmm. at the moment and then obviously my work and my blog mm-hmm. um, and you've got your yeah. sort of artwork that I love to have a oh. little stalk of and look at and <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and my art. Um, so I'm working on creating. So my artwork is is much more of a hobby, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that I haven't been doing for. I've been doing it for a few years now, but I love art at school, like truly awful, and <laughs> um, to the point where that when I first drew something a few years ago, my sister was like, "You didn't draw that." <laughs> I was like, "I did draw it. How dare you?" Um, the aim is to create net positive artwork because I feel like everything I should be doing is create should be creating um, positive change mm-hmm. um, because why not if you can? Absolutely. So yeah, so I've been doing. Um, I try to use as many non toxic materials as I can. At the moment, the paper I'm using is made from uh, recycled coffee cups, which is nice. uh, which is quite fun. Um, and I've been using natural watercolors as well mm-hmm. um, for some of my for some of my work. And I have been focusing on endangered species up until lockdown. Mm-hmm. And then I, it just felt really um, weird to be focusing on endangered species that were in different parts of the world when we'd become like so focused on our local environments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I started doing. Um, artwork of uh, British species basically and mm. things that I'd seen so yeah. it was like and I'm very lucky I live in in rural Hampshire and um, so there's a lot of wildlife around me and uh, so yeah so I've been focusing on that and the aim long term I also do expedition art as well um, which I've done on some of my trips um, and the aim is to sell I have so many other things going on which is probably you can tell I haven't been hugely focusing on this I've been creating the art but I haven't been doing this mm-hmm. this side of it so much and um, I do commissions sometimes though but it's to sell the art and then give a percentage of that uh, profit to a cause that is related to the artwork Amazing. Um, so it's not just about reducing your harm it's also about giving back yeah so I'll, I'll in the show notes obviously I'll put all your different links to social media and the website and stuff and also the artwork so people can check that out and and buy some bits um and help out in that way um i love what you're talking about with the natural watercolors i um i get a bumble magazine which is like an environmental sort of magazine and they had an article from an artist um a couple of issues ago where she goes and forages out in the forest and you know just gets up some roots and berries and like soaks them for a bit and then squeezes through cheesecloth those colors and then paints with those and they're such like wonderful colours that you wouldn't probably get if you went to go and buy paints. Um, so that's really awesome. I like that. Might give it a go myself. I mean, not that I'm an artist, so it wouldn't be, you know. Everyone's an artist. <laughs> I'm like, uh, everyone's a conservationist. Everyone's an artist. It's, um, it doesn't matter if it doesn't look exactly like the thing. It's a representation of what you see, and it, it helps you appreciate the world more. I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Really interesting. It makes you see things differently and more clearly. Um, but there are courses. I was actually booked on to do one in in March, mm-hmm. March, May. 
I don't know, all the months are now blurring. Yeah. But I'm, I'm booked to do a natural inks course um, actually down in the southwest um, to do exactly what you're talking about, to go foraging and find all these different natural elements and then turn them into ink so then I could incorporate them into into my artwork. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like that's a it's, – it's amazing. We have all these resources and we don't use them. It's Absolutely. just crazy. Yeah, and I, th- I suppose that's another way of like – as you're saying talking about getting people to care about nature by being connected with nature like that's yet another way um that that it can be done um and yeah and i feel like perhaps more people have become more appreciative and more connected with the outdoors over lockdown and for me like that's that's a big positive that's come out of it <laughs> if if there are positives to be found Okay, so I think that is a nice little point to leave the interview with Soraya there. Um, That's part one. I hope you enjoyed listening to all of the different things that she does and the wonderful projects that she's got going on. Um, Exciting stuff for the future. Um, As I said, touched on in the interview, I will pop all her details into the show notes so you can have a little explore in time for in a couple of weeks time where we have part two of the interview and part two of the black footed ferret story. Yes, so just thank you once again for getting this far with me. Um, I hope you've enjoyed part one. I hope you're excited for part two. Um, I know I am um, and excited for the final episode of season one. Um, So thank you, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Have fun. Lots of love. Goodbye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.